Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS on air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernio, a nationally known gerontologist. She's the executive director for the WellMed Charitable Foundation, past president of the National Council on Aging, on whose board she still serves, and we are delighted to see you again. Well, thank you very much. It's always good to be here. We're going to be talking in just a moment to a woman named Bobby Carducci, uh, who has an incredible story of caregiving for her father-in-law. You name the disease, he had it. I know, and uh, a lot of times we talk to caregivers who are dealing with a disease. So what happens when you're dealing with multiple issues? Uh, and, you know, Bobby was has been able to uh, navigate those waters and come out and write a book about it. And we will talk with her in just a couple of moments. This is one of those stereotypes, Carol, that I wish wasn't true, that seniors are so susceptible to scams. You'd like to think that... Uh, they're smart enough not to uh, know the old, if it's too good to be true, it's too good to be true. And yet it turns out $37 billion a year taken from seniors. Well, it is. And and we are um, in May uh, recording the show, uh, which is Elder Abuse Prevention or um, Awareness Month. And I recently saw an article, you know, right now, uh, Stanley Marvel Comics are at the top of the cinematic heap. And Stanley was actually in the news recently. They've been trying to figure out is he a victim of elder abuse? His wife of many, many years passed away a year ago, and now he's with other relatives. And so what happens then? Uh, and, and that concern is entirely justified. That $37 billion you're talking about, about 60% of the time, it is a family member who is perpetrating you know, the elder abuse, who's taking the money. Because they have access to the money. Because they have access to the money. And, and, you know, that's a situation where the family deteriorates very quickly. Um, you may recall uh, Brooke Astor uh, in the news several years ago where her grandson accused her fa- his father of stealing her money when she was in her 90s. And, and Brooke Astor's son actually went to prison for uh, his embezzling of substantial amounts of money. And they had a lot of money. And they had plenty of money, plenty of old money. Uh, And so there you have an example of somebody who, this is not something, it doesn't affect just the elderly, I mean the rich. It it cuts across all sociodemographic lifestyles, and uh, and it's heartbreaking. It really is And a lot of times it's that Social Security check. Well, it's that month it's, after month after month. Well, and then it's it's that Social Security check and any savings that they have, and then loans. Uh, the story that you know I was looking at talked about a woman who went through all of her all of her current assets, all of her savings, reverse mortgage on her house, took out loans, you know, and then ended up committing suicide with sixty nine dollars to her wow. name. Uh, and, you know, she was so humiliated and embarrassed that she had fallen prey to someone who offered her sweepstakes winnings. This all started with that phone call. You've won the sweepstakes, and all you need to do is pay the taxes, and we'll send you a check. Don't believe it. Yeah, and, and so, you know, I, I think of, I don't, 
again, I don't know anybody who doesn't have a family member who's had at least a scam. I know my own father kind of laughed when he told the story. It was lucky that he recognized it was a scam before my son could drive. Somebody called, and and they said that they were a friend of my son's and that my son had been driving uh, a car and had been in an accident and had run over and, and injured a rabbi which the area of my country, the country where my father lives, there are very few rabbis. You would have to really <laughs> Far work West hard Texas. to find the one, yeah, yeah, not <laughs> the all, one in not town of, right, to run over. And, right. and my son didn't even drive at the time. But my, my dad was kind of enjoying the story and seeing what was going to happen next. <laughs> in but this he wasn't taken tale. in. But he wasn't taken in. But that was then. I mean, I, you know, so many people... Uh, it, it, they, they, there's so much on Facebook. There's so much information available to these scammers. You know, they call this, this person knew my son's name. He didn't have the right state, but he knew his name and, and kind of guessed where he was in life. And, and, you know, you just call and say, I'm a friend of your granddaughter's. I didn't even name the granddaughter's name. I just said, I'm a friend of your granddaughter's and she's in trouble. She's in prison. You know, we, we went on vacation and she was speeding and she got picked up and then she got in a fight and she got in jail. And all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness. Uh, it sounds like we wouldn't fall for it, but all of us, have you ever fallen for a scam? I have not. You have not? Oh, I you have know, not. I can think of an example with a, oh, I think it was a security company that we got scammed on. And so it's not, you don't have to be elderly. But I was hit by the one of uh, your friend, I forget who, who it was now, uh, is in, uh, has been arrested there in Canada or wherever it was, and they need money. And I, I remember saying, well, come on, that's baloney. And did they hang up? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they hung up. Yeah. And, and so... So you know, I, I was touched by a scam. It didn't go for it. But it didn't go for it. So you, they've tried to scam you. And, so, and How so, do you help people then? Well, you know, the, there are banks. You know, it's good to have a, a relationship with the, with the bank. You know, if you're a caregiver, if you have older relatives or older friends, you know, it's we've been told uh, by some of the experts, sometimes a local bank may be more receptive to um, monitoring and helping you if you have a relative that they are concerned about. Certainly there are legal documents, financial powers of attorney uh, that can help out if someone uh, doesn't really have good judgment related to financial issues. The The main uh, you know, call out I have for today is if you think, you know, it's like if you hear something, if you see something, say something. If you see something, say something. Even if it's a family member, if you have concerns, this can go downhill so quickly and can be so devastating. And think how embarrassed you would be. I mean, I know how embarrassed we were by the security company that, you know, did pull the fast one on us. Right. Um, And we were trying to keep our home safe in a bad neighborhood in California at the time. So, you know, it's it's devastating. And we have to act. We have to act when we see it in our neighbors, around us, and in our family members. Now, if you just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernio. We're talking about scams that hit seniors. In a couple of moments, we talk with Bobby Carducci, whose book talks about uh, some of the downsides of caregiving and the problems she found herself in, a very powerful story about caring for her father-in-law. So from $37 billion a year in scams, what about rent and, and other financial problems, Carol, that seniors often find themselves in? Well, I, I picked this article out because a, a lot of you know, caregiving can be very expensive. You can be dealing with 
people who are on fixed assets and that maybe they can no longer afford their home, or you may be a caregiver, um, and it's difficult making a living these days and being a caregiver, right. uh, and faced with the rising housing costs in so many cities. Uh, and it's really because the housing costs are going up so rapidly, and there's not that many houses. There are more renters, so rent goes up. And if you pay more than 30% of your income on rent, you are rent burdened. And a recent study showed that of people who are 65 and older, 50% are rent burdened. And of those, it's almost half of those, 23% are severely rent burdened, which means all of your money is going to pay for your rent. So how do you pay for the food and the medications and the other, you know, living costs that you have when all of your money is going for rent? And what's the answer? Well, I mean, the answer is... It's getting tough out there, um, and you probably, if you're having trouble, need to work with some sort of a financial advisor. There are nonprofits that can work with you in terms of helping restructure debt, uh, and there are a variety of, of ways to, to make money in the shared economy, and it may be time to consider some of those. But uh, the message is you're not alone out there. If you're having difficulty making your house payments, paying for your rent, if things are going up and your money's not going as far, you're in a very big club out there. Don't be embarrassed. Talk to somebody. Don't be embarrassed. Get some help. Ask questions. And the help is out there. Exactly. I want to jump ahead in a moment so we don't run out of time, but Naomi File is coming to town. Yes. And that's a big deal. She is coming to town, and it's going to be on Monday, May the 21st. If you're not in San Antonio on Monday, May the 21st, you can listen to her on, um, I'm sorry, she's coming on the 22nd, but she's doing the caregiver teleconnection which is our telephone program for caregivers on the 21st and we'll record that so she has a proven method of communication to help caregivers connect with their loved ones who have dementia um, and it's never easy to you know at some point when someone has dementia you're going to have communication problems like we talk about that next week on uh, caregiver sos on we, air we are going to be talking about it so um, if you happen to be around at one o'clock central time can get to a phone please call into our caregiver teleconnection uh, and listen to Naomi. And if you miss her, then go ahead and tune in to go to caregiversos.org and you can find the, the recorded session cool. with Naomi File. Too many folks in our community have diabetes and too many folks in our community have high blood sugar. And you have a magic list. I have the magic three list of foods, foods, three foods, three foods that um, help control blood sugar. If you have diabetes or the person you're caring for has diabetes, uh, and what you want to do is slow down your digestion and keep the sugars from, you know, rushing into your bloodstream. You know, I come from a family. We all have sugar highs and sugar lows. Why? And when they're low, get out of the way because we will... Be, we may be violent. Like I don't the know. Snickers ad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with the growling. So, um, number one is you want fiber-rich foods. So they take it takes longer to digest foods foods that are high in fiber. So a you know a fast food burger or a pastry goes right through your system and hits your all that sugar hits your bloodstream. Uh, but if you do nuts and seeds like walnuts and almonds. That things that have protein in them, beans and legumes, the bean family, those help slow your digestion. That it's going to take longer to break it down. You'll be in better shape. I love number two. Um, number two on the list is cinnamon. Really? 
So, yes, um, this is a, a new study that did a, it was a big, giant analysis of all of these other giant analyses of random control trials, and they found that um, a lower fasting blood glucose, it, it lowered gl- blood glucose and cholesterol sentiment. And they're not really sure why yet, but if, you know, in the meantime, sprinkle a little cinnamon on your oatmeal, a little on your cookie. No, don't eat the cookies. Why did I say that? Um, I was saying it was cinnamon. <laughs> don't, don't eat the cinnamon. It's not a magic bullet, but sp- sprinkling cinnamon on your food, well, it, you know, it's not going to hurt. Go for it. Go for the now cinnamon. Now, what's the third? The third is those wonderful leafy greens ah. and vegetables that we know are good for a variety of reasons. They don't have a lot of starch. They've got fiber, um, and they don't have a lot of carbs in them. And they also, you know, leafy greens are also good for helping prevent, uh, we hope, helping prevent Alzheimer's. At least it's on the plus side. So you can never go wrong with leafy greens I eat greens a lot of broccoli. Veggies. Let me tell you, eating that broccoli. Yep. Coming up next, Bobby Carducci. What a great name. Bobby Carducci joins us talking about caregiving and her challenges, caring for her father-in-law who struggled with an enormous number of issues, including uh, dementia. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Bobby, next on Caregiver SOS on air on 9:30 a.m. The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host Cora Juke is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. Well, as we have been promising, we are delighted to welcome Bobby Carducci on Caregiver SOS On Air. She's on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline, an author, a speaker, a lecturer who talks a lot about uh, the confessions of an imperfect caregiver. That's her book, among others. And she joins us now on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Bobby, thanks for coming on. Well, I thank both you and Carol for uh, having me on. Uh, it's a subject that is becoming more and more important and, and touching more and more families every day. Well, there's no question about that. As we are an aging society, more and more folks uh, end up in a situation either as a caregiver or a care recipient or, in many cases, both. You, in your own experience, uh, spent some time caring for your father-in-law, who uh, you named the disease he had it, dementia, Parkinson's, dysphagia, COPD, congestive heart failure, schizophrenia. How in the world did you end up as his caregiver? Well, I come from a long line of family caregivers. It's almost a given if somebody in in our family needs help, one of us will step up. But my husband and I had talked about the possibility of caring for one of our parents. Um, It happened a lot sooner than than we thought it would, but um, when my mother-in-law passed away, one of the most... uh, 
frequent questions we heard is who's going to take care of, of Mike's dad because he had been uh, unable to take care of himself for a long time. And we were in a position, fortunately, that we had the room and we had the resources that we could just step up and say, we've got this, we'll take him. I didn't know how involved it was going to be or how long it would take at the time, but if I had known that, I still would have done it. Now, he was able uh, uh, to have spent uh, a great deal of time in a mental institution, comes out of a hospital. Was his schizophrenia successfully treated with medication? Well, yes. He was originally diagnosed with schizophrenia in 1947 when he was serving in the United States Army. Um, and he had his first psychotic break at that point. And he spent 13 years at, uh, in the VA mental hospital at Perry Point in Maryland. And once they were able to control that with medication, he was released. And it was after that that he met and married my mother-in-law. And um, my husband was seven years old at the time. So he was actually my husband's stepfather. Well, I'm curious because you have someone that has mental illness. Um, and later, you know, with the Parkinson's, I mean, there's several things here that could lead to dementia. How did you differentiate between mental illness that went with the schizophrenia versus what was diagnosed as dementia later on? What was different about that? Well, for the most part, a lot of the behaviors are similar, and it really didn't matter which one was um, coming forward at the time. But after he'd been with us for a while, I began to recognize when he was hearing voices that were clear indications that it was the schizophrenia. And I would tell my husband, oh, the others are here today. Uh, yes, we're joined by our friends. That well, that's interesting. Um, the, a, the, when you, your comment about it doesn't matter because we've often said with uh, different types of dementia, there are some that are very, very similar. The trajectory is different, but once you determine it's irreversible, you know, then you're really just you're dealing with the dementia. So that's interesting that you would say that didn't that part didn't really matter. But that's a that uh, did did you know or did anyone say hey if this you know Roger has schizophrenia someday he's probably also going to get dementia is, do you know is there a relationship between the two? Um, I really don't know and the fa- and the fact of the matter is neither I or my husband knew about the schizophrenia when he first moved in with us. Um, the story that was told throughout the family was that he had um, had received an injury during his service in the Army. Um, I guess mental illness wasn't talked about, and right. it wasn't until I actually got his, his uh, hospital records from the VA hospital in Pittsburgh where he had been treated, sent to me in Virginia where we live, and I was reading them, and that's when I got that news. Wow, how, did you, that, how did you feel when you read that? I thought, uh-oh, this is going to be a lot bigger than I thought. And was he at the time under medication or not? Um, he was he was under medication. He was seeing um, a mental health specialist at the VA hospital in Martinsburg, West Virginia, at the time. Um, but what I didn't know was, even though he pretended to be very um, cautious about taking his medication, he was actually throwing them out or cheeking them and pretending he was taking them. And he ended up having a psychotic break when he was with us. Right. Which what, is, what did that look like? Um. He, he be, first, there were physical symptoms. He began um, sometimes shaking his head so violently it was, you know, like looking like a headbanger that on too many drugs. 
um, and I couldn't figure out what that was. And sometimes he would freeze in place, and um, that's when I began to think that there was something very definitely wrong and kept taking him back to the doctors, and they were adjusting his medications, and it kept getting worse um, because he wasn't taking it. And then one afternoon, when I think it was a Sunday, and I was preparing dinner, and I called him down, and he leaned over the banister and said, no, I'm not eating anything you ever cook again. You're poisoning me. I know you're trying to kill me. Um, I need to get out of here. And he actually ran down the stairs and out the door and over to um, a house a couple of doors down where a deputy sheriff lived and asked him for help um, to get away from us. Did the deputy sheriff know you? Was he concerned you were really trying to poison him? That's one of the horror stories of of our personal story in that um, it was a new neighborhood. A lot of people hadn't met each other yet, but I was relieved when he went to the the deputy's house thinking, okay, I'm going to get some help. And actually the man came out of his door and and, and my father-in-law said, you know, you got to help me. She's trying to kill me. And I looked at him and I said, he's ill. I need help. I need to get him to the hospital. And, And he looked at me and said, I don't appreciate you bringing him to my house on my day off. Get off my lawn, or I'm going to arrest the both of you. Wow! Oh, that's and, that is that is that is disconcerting and disappointing. Uh, you know, to me, I don't know how any neighbor would do that, let alone somebody in law enforcement. But fortunately, we were able to get help um, from another person who lived in the in the neighborhood, who also worked for the sheriff's department. It was a hostage negotiator, and he came over and he calmed things down and um, helped us get my father-in-law to the hospital. Now hold that thought, Bobby. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. We're talking with Bobby Carducci, who is a speaker and author and a former caregiver whose book, Confessions of an Imperfect Caregiver, chronicles, among other things, caring for her father-in-law who struggled with schizophrenia, dementia, Parkinson's disease, and a number of other issues. You get him, fortunately, a hostage negotiator was the right person. Oh, he absolutely was, because the first thing he he did was um, assure my father-in-law that he was there to help him, um, that they would make sure that he was safe. Um, He called in. I I found out that the the first um, deputy had actually called in asking for a car to come and and get us. He was going to have us arrested. And um, the uh, second officer said, no, she didn't do anything wrong. We have an elder person that's agitated and needs some assistance, and, and I'm here to help. So That first guy could have used a little added training. Yeah, he just needed that day off. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but for years that was, golly, back in the dark ages when I got in the business, that was the big concern because there was no training at the time in law enforcement for people that had dementia, mental illness, right. you know, that for a long time it was really pretty slim pickings for, you know, we didn't there weren't that many hostage negotiators around just wandering well, down your neighborhood. It's getting much better, but as someone I lead a caregiver support group in my local community and every now and then one of the people that attend the group report a less than satisfying um situation with law enforcement who haven't been properly trained and that's that's one of my goals is to get into some of the um 
sheriff's office and the, and the police departments and, and talk to them about how 99% of the time the response is as it should be, but for that 1%, it can be really dangerous, and maybe I can help talk to some of the officers so they know what to do next time. Right. The, the training is a huge issue, um, and we definitely need more of that. Well, what did you learn about yourself as you went down this journey caring for your father-in-law? Well, you know, in my in my blessed ignorance, when I brought him in here, I thought, once he gets into my care, he's going to be just fine. <laughs> of course, I didn't realize then how sick he was or how sick he would become. Um, and I had some real self-doubts in, in my caregiving journey when the days would be really, really difficult and maybe I didn't respond in the best possible way. And I began to doubt myself. And even said to my husband once, I'm not the person that I thought I, wa- I, wa- I, thought I was. And um, he said, who did, who did you think you were? I said, I, I thought a kind person, a loving person. He said, well, that, you show that to both of us every single day. Um, but that's where that imperfection comes in because there's no perfect way to do it. There's, there's no manual that tells you exactly what to do on any given day. So you do the best you can, and sometimes it doesn't turn out the way you wanted it to. And then you fall back and you try something else. Well, um, what? Uh, talk a little bit about your husband. Um, and did you, you know, was he working at the time? Were you home with with your father-in-law? Were you both there? Um, when Dad first came to live with us, we thought we could both continue working. But it wasn't too long into his stay with us. Um, when it became obvious that he didn't feel comfortable and it was best not to leave him alone. So I left my corporate job to take care of him. And, and my husband, who worked for the federal government for 30 years, he went to work every day to support us so I could be here with his father. And he felt a good bit of guilt during that time that I was doing so much to care for his father. Uh, but to me, family is family. It doesn't matter how, how you get them. <laughs> All right, we're going to pick this up in just a moment, Bobby. Stick with us. We're talking with Bobby Carducci, author of Confessions of an Imperfect Caregiver. But then again, aren't we all imperfect caregivers? I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernio. You listen to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. This is a fascinating story. We're picking up with Bobby Carducci author of Confessions of an Imperfect Caregiver, also has an award-winning book on a totally different topic, and we can talk about that a little later in the show, but uh, ended up as part of uh, Cesar Milan, the Dog Whisperer's official publication, Cesar's Way magazine, so we can talk about that as well. We're talking about Bobby and caregiving. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernio. Uh, You're talking about how it turned out to be a lot more difficult caring for your father-in-law. For those who are listening who are just beginning that caregiving journey, is there anything you would have done differently knowing what you know now? Um, I'm a lot more educated on it now. I understand that there are um, caregiver support groups both online and in person, and I definitely would have tapped into those. Um, Before he got into the house, I probably would have put together what I call a care team and, you know, assigned people certain ways that they could help, even though the day-to-day one-on-one caregiving was my responsibility. Um, Maybe somebody could come and sit with Dad for half an hour so I could take a shower every now and then, or, you know, come and stay with him so I could go to church and cry and pray so I could get through the next day. 
it's so important for caregivers to have support, and unfortunately so many of us are on our own or pretty much on our own doing it. Um, and other family caregivers are busy with their own families, and they don't really understand how they can help, but sometimes it's not the day-to-day care for the person with dementia. It's taking some of those other responsibilities off, the, off our plate, get the car inspected, cut the grass, bring over a casserole every now and then, um, just to lighten the load a bit. Well, you talked about how your husband felt guilty that you quit your job to take care of his father. Um, and, and then your title of your book, An Imperfect Caregiver, you know, did you, did you feel guilty that you, you know, maybe couldn't do everything you originally thought that you could do? Or that, you know, did you ask for help at the time? Um, we did ask for help. Um, but we were, we were in one of those situations where people kind of looked at us and said they've got this and kind of walked away and just, and just left us to it. Um, you know, my husband did the best that he could. He, he not only, you know, went to work every day, but he also ran the errands and did the grocery shopping. And every now and then he would tell me to get out of the house so he could, so I could, um, decompress a bit. But it was probably the hardest seven years in, in our marriage. And we've been married 31 years and we never argued as much. As much as, as when you were caregiving together? As much as when we were caregiving, absolutely. The, the strain was just enormous. And I have to give him a lot of credit because the poor man would come in from, from work and I'd be standing at the door tapping my foot saying, guess what your dad did today? And he'd listen to that and then he'd go upstairs and his dad would come out of his room and say, guess what she did today? And he would get it from both sides and finally he just said, please just give me a few minutes to get in the door and then I'll be happy to help you in any way I can. Uh, well, um, so... It's, he had such a variety of health conditions with the dementia and the mental health, but Parkinson's and COPD and congestive heart failure. Um, did he become bedridden at any point? Were you also having to, to deal with the physical side of caregiving besides the mental issues that he had? Oh, absolutely. Um it started at when he had the psychotic break. He was in the psych ward for eight weeks, and they sent him home with pneumonia. And he ended up back in the hospital for another four weeks, and he nearly died. Um, and he never really was physically strong after that. And then eventually he had a heart attack, um, and the Parkinson's took over, and he developed the swallowing problems, and he couldn't walk as well anymore. Um, so he he went from being a very strong man who loved to, to go for a walk. He would go out for a 20-minute walk three, three times a day to not being able to walk at all. Uh, and eventually he ended, we had in-home hospice for him. And um, Did, How long yeah. was he on hospice? Um, about four months. Four months. That's good, though, because yeah. I hear so many stories of people getting on hospice for a day or three days uh, and mm-hmm. a, a lot of times it's just too, too late. It's just too late. So for the caregivers that are listening, you know, that's a that's a good note to, to bring in. And I know that in my own family, uh, we actually had hospice for a year from my mother who had Alzheimer's. Uh, and it was the saving grace of the whole situation. Absolutely. When I had somebody that could come in and help me bathe him um, and shave him and, you know, help with some of those issues, that was that was a big relief. Um, Plus, they were trained and knew what they were doing. Exactly. 
Now, it was a tough day when they came in and they brought the comfort kit in and uh, put the DNR up on the refrigerator. That right. was a tough day. Right. Well, you, you talk about confessions of an imperfect caregiver. What are you confessing? Um, I'm confessing my own frailties, I think. And um, during the time that I was a caregiver, um, I would hear from other caregivers who would say, why doesn't somebody write a book that tells what it's really like? And um, I've been a writer since I was eight years old, so I thought, well, I can do this. I didn't realize how hard that was going to be, how emotional it was going to be putting the book together. But I, I wanted to give a clear picture of what, what one family dealing with this very difficult issue lived with on a day-to-day basis and show it how it happened. So there are, there are moments in there when I lose my temper with him and then I feel terrible guilt for that. There are a, a number of places where my husband didn't behave well, and I had to ask. I asked his permission to put that in the book as well, and he and he agreed that honesty was the whole reason for putting the putting the book together. And I and I've heard from caregivers saying, "Thank you for admitting this. Thank you for saying this. I thought I was the only one." And like I said before, I spent a lot of time crying and praying that I could get through the next day. Um, Every time I thought I had a handle on something, one of the other things would pop up. Well, I can understand with so much of that going on. So is your is your message to people reading the book that it's okay to be imperfect? Absolutely. And beyond that, um, I often say I spent seven years trying to save him from himself, and he spent seven years trying to convince people that I was crazy. Um <laughs> And sometimes being a little bit crazy is is exactly what's needed in that situation, because if you try to be rational all the time, um, you're not going to make it. Well, after you wrote the book and, and when you got to the end of the, the actual caregiving experience, looking back on it, um, you said you would still do it all again. But is the, it, other than getting the, you know, lining out that care plan, are there other things you would have done differently or do you see things in a different light in terms of the, you know, his behavior and your response to it? I, I'm a whole lot more educated on it right now. I, I go to a, a lot of caregiver conferences, sometimes as a speaker and sometimes um, as part of the audience to learn as much as I can. And um, one thing I know, should it arise that I do this again, I will not make the same mistakes, but I also know I'll make different ones because... It's it's such a challenging situation, and we never know from moment to moment what's going to happen, and we're just kind of, I call it creative problem-solving on the run. And if anybody knows a formula for dealing with it, it would be very helpful for for millions of people to know it. But at this point, there isn't one. Now, I thought it was interesting that uh, among the things that you write, it's not all about caregiving, and you've got a uh, a Gold Mom's Choice Award for your book, Story Writer Gets a Dog. Uh, and tell us about that book. Uh, Story Writer is actually based on, on me and a number of people that live in Loudoun County, Virginia, where I am. As I said before, I started writing at the age of eight, and um, I love to work with beginning writers. I love to work with children writers. And Story Writer Gets a Dog is the story of a young girl whose neighbor comes over with um, with a puppy and asks her family to take it in and train it to be a therapy dog. 
and um, it's the story of story writer. That's her name, and that's who she is, and that's what she does. And she has a cat named Kritik, and um, she works to train her dog to be a therapy dog, and at the end of the day she'll sit down with her two pets and, um, and write a story about what they did during the day. And it's, it's aimed at kids about eight years old, and there's some writing prompts in the back to get them started so they can be a story writer too. And um, Addie, the dog that's on the cover, was one of the first therapy dogs that was trained for the Paws for People Foundation. And um, the character of Kyrie, who's in the book, actually started uh, the Paws for People Foundation when she was 12 years old and wanted to find a way to share her dog with people who couldn't have one in their home. And do you have a dog? Um, we don't. Um I've had a lot of dogs throughout my lifetime, but now that uh, Mike is retired and and I work from home, we like our freedom and we don't want to have to worry about you know putting a dog in a in uh, his cage for the right, day and, right. and leaving him. Well, well, you live in a beautiful part of the country in Loudoun County. I lived for a period of time in Fauquier County, Virginia, not far from where you are in the view of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Uh, uh, you must enjoy that very much. Oh yes, we do. We can sit on the deck or look out uh, the window in our family room at the Blue Ridge Mountains um, and watch the sun go down in the evening. It, it's it's absolutely lovely. We no. live in a small town, um, and we like the small town life with, you know, people know each other and greet each other. Um, and Dad loved it, too. He loved the, to look at the mountains, which reminded him of the mountains in Italy where he grew up. I was going to ask you about uh, how he responded to Sitting on the deck is, you talk about sitting on your deck. Um, like I said, he, he absolutely loved it. He loved to be outside. Um, and, you know, when we talk about caregiving, we often talk about how difficult it was. But I'd like to mention the fact that I also see it as a gift. Because during those moments of clarity that I had with him, when he was ready to talk about growing up in Italy on the farm, um, you know, having rolling up the carpet in the kitchen on Saturday night and dancing the tango with the pretty girls or or um, carving wood to make his own skis to go skiing in the mountains. Those are precious gifts that I would not have had any other way. And I like to remind people that our loved ones with dementia weren't always this way, and most of them have some of these wonderful memories that every now and then we're fortunate to hear from them. Well, that's an, it's an important reminder, and we, we do talk about the difficulties, but we often hear about caregiving as a gift, and for as many things uh, that you're, you were dealing with with your father-in-law, that's lovely uh, that you can see through. I mean, you obviously saw him, not just the illnesses that he was battling. Sometimes we liked each other a whole lot, and sometimes we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you want to know more about Bobby and uh, her work, she has a website, BobbyCarducci.com, Bobby with an I, Carducci with an I. And we thank you so much for coming on. Anything we haven't asked you you'd like to toss in? No, I don't I don't believe so. And, I, again, I thank you so much for letting me share our story. Um, and I hope that somewhere along the line it helps one of the other caregivers out there. Well, I'm sure it will, Bobby. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bobby Carducci, Confessions of an Imperfect Caregiver. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zerniel. Take 10 is next with Dr. Jamie Heisman. 
You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. Thank you so much for sticking with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. As we promised, we end each of these programs with Take 10. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, and we invite in Dr. Jamie Heisman, nationally known psychotherapist and expert on addictions and caregiving. And this topic that Carol has picked is really right down your alley, Jamie. The numbers are astounding. Seniors who are troubled by drug addiction, drug overdose, opioids, alcohol, you name it. Pain management. Yeah, pain management. I cannot tell you how many conversations I have heard recently related to um, how do we control pain besides passing out a pill. You know, this is the silent epidemic of our country. Right now uh, is a perfect topic because seniors are the fastest growing group of addicts and alcoholics in the United States today. The interesting thing is that the United States uses about 80% of the world's opioids. So our physicians uh, and those prescribers have been very much influenced both by the pharmaceutical industry and, of course, by legitimate pain to actually, if you will, prescribe them in a way that the rest of the world is not. So when you say what, what are we doing other people are not doing? Or what are other people doing? I'm sorry? The, the others are... The others are finding what uh, Carol was talking about, which is alternatives uh, to pain, to opioids being used as pain uh, medication. Well, now, let me clear up something first before we go on. Pain is legitimate, and opiates are legitimately prescribed to those who do have pain. It is prescribed on a shorter-term basis, and even now during this opiate sort of uh, epidemic that's hitting the country, you're finding state after state starting to limit the amount that the doctor can actually prescribe literally to seven to ten pills at a clip, so they have to go back into their doctor for uh, a new medication uh, prescription. So is this a is this a whiplash? For years, we didn't treat pain hardly at all. It seemed like it was like you're just going to have to learn to live Suck with it. it up. Yeah. So you know, it seemed like there was so little in the way, and people and and people didn't address pain. And then all of a sudden, we started passing out the pills for the pain, and we've gone way the other way. Is I that- don't want to create conspiracy theories, but the pharmaceuticals are creating in research and design many more different medications for pain. And every time they create it, it's you know millions upon hundreds of millions sometimes of research and design. And so they do have to find in this world of capitalism a way to sell it. And so they do go out with these marketing tactics with physicians around the country 
and try to get them to prescribe their particular medication. Seniors are the most vulnerable population out there and are exhibiting these addictions mainly because they are unsuspecting and many don't have caregivers. And so they get hooked on it, literally, then they isolate, which is pretty normal, unfortunately, for many seniors. And the next thing is addiction. So how would they know they're becoming hooked on their pain pills? Well, it's a little thing called tolerance, Carol, that the more you take of something, the more you get used to it. And so uh, an, addict, uh, an addict, literally, there are all the agitated states and depressed states and the bad sleeping habits and those type of things, anxiety that we do feel. But even more so, uh, you'll find out that patients really do understand what tolerance is because they may have been prescribed one at one particular time that then increased that that one wasn't effective. They needed one and a half, and they just started increasing more and more. So they're taking more and more. Um is there do do you become more susceptible to to pain? I mean, you're, if you if it takes more and more, do you become more and more intolerant of any pain once you've kind of gotten to this zero pain level? You know, actually, there is no zero pain level. The interesting thing about opiates is um, they're kind of a distraction. Many times, seniors and and everybody anybody I work with older than fifty will tell you that uh, the doctor prescribed medication and it didn't really target the pain, but distracted them literally from the pain, also gave them, you know, symptoms that, side effect symptoms like, like you know, bad stomachs and, and anxiety and the inability to sleep. When I came home after knee replacement surgery, uh, I got a prescription my doctor prescribed for uh, 120 hydrocodone up to four a day for a month. Yeah. And uh, uh, fortunately, we joke a lot on the show, if you're a regular listener, about my wife who's the caregiver from hell. The one thing Gina really, really did is control and maintain access uh, to that medication. Uh, And uh, I probably have now, you know, a huge bottle filled with hydrocodone somewhere that I never took. Because I finally said, I don't, I, you know, I don't like the way this makes me feel, and I quit taking it. Now, I never had much pain, if any, after the surgery, and I, and I do think you say it distracts from pain. Whatever it does, it worked. I, I was pain-free. Well, you know, this is interesting that he would give you or she would give you, the doctor, that many opiates because that I, – I don't want to question their, their practice patterns, but certainly – if they had only given you 30 or 35, you'd have to go back and reevaluate with right. the physician or the nurse practitioner a little bit of how it was making you feel, if you were starting to develop a tolerance, if it was addressing the pain. I mean, we're about to look at a tsunami. Baby boomers right now are finally coming of age. And for your audience, that's people between the ages of, uh, who were born in, let's say, 1946 or 48, I'm not sure, to 64. Yeah, yeah 46 so to 64. Growing, 46 to 64. They're the fastest growing group because. That is a little bit of the mentality of us boomers. You know, uh, uh, it was all drugs, sex, and rock and roll for the most part. And so the drug piece, the opioid piece, is literally now matching the boomers as we enter seniors. The demand, if you will, is happening. Now we're talking about seniors and drugs and addiction on Take 10 on Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel and Dr. Jamie Heisman. Uh, So, Jamie... Uh, when you look at that body of evidence that more and more seniors, the fastest growing group of people addicted to drugs 
and alcohol, too, I'm assuming. So what do we do about it? That's an interesting thing. I believe, again, that isolation is creating this terrible, terrible issue. We are looking, actually, at doubling the amount of addicts and alcoholics among the senior population since 2005. They say it was totally doubled by 2020. My feeling is places like Caregiver SOS, support groups, ways to connect with people in your community, your faith-based organization, uh, these are hedges against this terrible, terrible disease called addiction. Also, caregiver education. We need to really educate caregivers and loved ones what to look for when their loved one is taking an opiate for pain. So they, we have to have monitors on an ongoing basis. And so understand that opioid addiction among seniors um, is, is, is going to get worse and worse. I mean, there's no questions about it. So we need more and more you know, training and education and eyeballs on that particular senior. So if I was a caregiver, um, either living with my loved one or maybe visiting, you know, coming by and taking care of mom or dad, what would I look at? How would I know that they were becoming dependent on opioids or any kind of painkiller? I mean, look at all the people around Prince, uh, and he dies alone in an elevator, and people were surprised. Absolutely. But if your loved one is isolating more and more, and if you're a caregiver and you're actually, let's say, on the, as, on the, let's say, the medical treatment process with your loved one, meaning you've signed the release and you're a part of it, um, I just think you should assume the worst when opiates come out. I don't think, again, I want to keep reiterating, I think pain is legitimate. And actually, the prescription of painkillers is also legitimate. But I also believe that you have to assume that if a person is going to continue on a long-term basis, which is not what uh, is asked for in terms of painkillers, but they're going to continue, that they will build a tolerance. So I think the caregiver does need to look for increased isolation. They need to look at sleep issues. They also need to look at the change of moods. And, and when you bring up, let's say, the Oxycontin or the Hydrocodone or Vicodin issue, what their loved one actually does if their loved one is so protective of that medication in the conversation that it you know, creates a red flag for us, if you will. So in the 30 seconds we have left, um, what would you say if, what do we do? We, we take our loved one, they come home from the hospital or the doctor, and they've got one of those pain medications. Do we need a plan of how we're going to work with it in advance, kind of like what Gina did with Ron? Absolutely. I think that education, A, from the doctor to the caregiver and to the loved one, the carry is vital. And then I think ongoing awareness constantly about the, the, the issue that expect, if you will, that your loved one may get hooked onto this is important. So, got to stop you right there. We're, we're okay. bingo. We're out of time. I'm sorry, <laughs> but but you made the point. We'll come back next time, Dr. Jamie Heisman, Ron Aaron, you Carol Zernio. Take ten at nine thirty a.m. The answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner, 
What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there.